in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, part 2 this morning. And uh, let's turn once again in prayer as we ask God to bless this time in His Word. Our Father, by Your Spirit, we ask You to strengthen uh, the faith of Your people through Your Word, that we would even one degree more glorify and enjoy You. Uh, In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the Word. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is God's Word. You may be seated. Last week we saw in verse 1 the kind of the foolishness of the Galatians in making this most unwise trade of trading in the work of Christ for their own works. And it's kind of like the equivalent of trading the, the Sistine Chapel for some finger painting art. Um, actually worse, more foolish because they're trading the gospel of Christ literally for their own efforts, which is foolish indeed. That was verse 1. And this morning really is on the same line, um, and it's really part two of what I've titled Shaking the Bewitched. Paul is kind of shaking these people back to life who have been, um, kind of had a cast, cast a spell over them. This text this morning, verses 2 through 5, he asks a series of rhetorical questions in an effort to kind of move the Galatians back toward right thinking. And uh, he asks them, how, basically, how has God worked in you so far? Has God worked in you by your works of the law, or has he worked in you by hearing the gospel with faith? Which is it? And really, it's rhetorical questions. It's a a rebuke. Paul rebukes these Galatian Christians for being foolish. And he's lovingly nudging them or or shoving them back into reality. And we, we too, are are tempted at times to take the load of the law on our own shoulders. Um, Even after we've started by the Spirit, we want to take that burden on ourselves. And, And the church as a whole does that historically and people do that individually but in so doing we uh, contradict the gospel the very thing that we started with i think it's part of man's natural disposition to um, disbelieve that free grace is actually really free Uh, we we gravitate toward the, the wage earned free gifts are too humbling scripture here reminds us that The whole Christian life is lived by hearing with faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just the beginning. The whole Christian life is lived by hearing with faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's first rhetorical question um, here, he kind of flips the tables on the Galatians. He's asking, how did you receive the Spirit? 
one effective teacher move. Some of you are teachers. You may have used this. I probably had it used on me, but especially if a student is under the impression that they know more than the instructor, you can say, okay, smarty pants, I'll sit down and you teach me. But then the teacher leaves the student with a problem he can't answer. Puts the pupil in his place. God does this to Job. He pulls this move on him. He says, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. (laughs) Literally here in verse 2, Paul is is saying where he says, let me ask you only this. Literally it is, this alone I wish to learn from you. I want to learn from you. Tell me this. You, You teach me. Okay, Galatians, I seem to have gotten something wrong when I preached the gospel the first time. You instruct Christ the apostle now. I'll sit and learn at your feet. And here's the question I want you to answer for me. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by your works of the law or by hearing the gospel with faith? And his tone is mocking. It's sharp. He says, I really want to hear you say it out loud. I want to hear you say, I received the Spirit by works of the law. I earned the Spirit. The purpose of a rhetorical question is to prove an obvious point. And in, in, in Paul's argument, he, he says, the obvious point is you did not receive the Spirit by works of the law. Of course you began the Christian life by hearing with faith. The implicit question behind the question is, you, you began by receiving a free gift of the gospel of Christ crucified. You heard and believed. Why would you trade that gem for the rot of your own works? Clearly, I'm missing something. Help me out. Instruct me, he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's really absurd on the face of it. Um, and really, we, we might ask, how can they make such an obvious blunder? And yet, how naturally do I drift toward the same patterns? I mean, how often do I try to shoulder a responsibility that is God's? Or how often do I think that God needs me for His purposes? Or, or I equate my perceptions of what it means to be blessed by God and kind of make that the gold standard of what it actually means to be favored of God. Or I strive in my own merit, in my own strength, to, to force God's hand. A litmus test how, is, is how often do I rely on my own reason versus prayer? I'm naturally bent toward trying to do it myself, and I think we all are. So we should stop asking ourselves, or we should stop and ask ourselves, how how was it that I first became a Christian? What did I do to receive the Holy Spirit? Did did I reason my way into it? I figured it all out. Did did God kind of recruit me because I'm skillful and intelligent and He wanted me on His team? No, obviously. <laughs> did God? Did, did I earn my favor before God uh, based on superb morality? Obviously, no. Once again, that, that's foolishness. And we have to remember here that there was a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but this is primarily a Gentile area, the Galatians, and they received um, the Spirit as Gentiles, before they really knew what works of the law were. 
the idea that they might sometime be circumcised had never crossed their mind. And yet what had happened to them is they received the Spirit. They heard with faith and they received the Spirit well before any notion of circumcision had arrived. Paul makes the same point in in Romans 4, Abraham. When was Abraham circumcised? Before or after he believed? After. His righteousness was not based on his circumcision. His righteousness was reckoned to him for belief. And then he was circumcised as a sign. If these Galatian Christians had to be circumcised in addition to hearing in faith, then they would not be children of Abraham. Um, which is the point that Paul will make here in the next uh, few verses in in chapter 3. But the way that the Galatians or the Romans or any person receives the Holy Spirit is by hearing with faith. He says, hearing with faith. What does Paul mean by uh, receive the Holy Spirit? That's an interesting phrase. Receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's definitely not talking about some kind of a, a second blessing theology where you're converted and then later on you, you receive the Holy Spirit again or, or a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit kind of idea, except in the broad sense that every Christian experiences, um, like 1 Corinthians 12:13, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. But what he's talking about here is, is conversion. When you receive the Holy Spirit, is conversion. It's the same Spirit of whom Paul says in Ephesians, In, in Him you also, when you, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So, uh, the, the mode of operation of the Spirit can be sometimes confusing, but He does come to us before we're converted to, to call us to Him and to regenerate us and to bring us to life so that we can believe. But then when we do believe the Gospel, He indwells us. We receive Him as this gift. We receive Him as our guarantee. We should be moved by this first question to remember with freshness, the power of the gospel. Did we earn the Holy Spirit by works of the law, or did we receive him when we believed the gospel, when we heard and had faith? Often I talk about how we're concerned about the trajectory of modern evangelicalism, and and these issues are kind of at the the core of my concern. Uh, I hear a lot of people kind of, urging people to enter a relationship with God, which is good. Or, or, But it usually amounts to some kind of backdoor evangelism where relationship is front and center and Christ crucified seems to take a back seat. Uh, and, and generally, we want people to be obedient. We want them to be good people. And so we teach them more about Christian morals and virtues But what ends up happening or being communicated, if accidentally, is you can have a relationship with God, but keep keep all these rules. Which is really an enormous blunder. 
And it's not just them. Uh, where, where I'm at in my life, raising kids, it, it's hard to keep the gospel front and center because there's a lot of behavior issues. And you want to fix behavior. Uh, law addresses behavior. It can be effective at addressing behavior, but gospel addresses the heart. So it's awfully tempting to just preach law without the gospel. But we must keep the gospel front and center. These are the most basic truths of the Christian life. And we, we can easily forget them, but we have to just preach over and over again that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The next verse here, um, verse 3, kinda, it really delivers an immense practical import into the life of, of Christians, into Christian living. We talked about some of these topics in Sunday school this morning, but I, I commonly hear things similar to, I, I was saved in 87, and I've been trying to pay God back ever since. <laughs> or maybe more subtly, now that he saved me, I just try to live my life for him, which there's a lot of good merit to, to saying something like that, but we have to be careful. So, well-meaning statements from genuine Christians, to be sure, but, but what makes statements like these have the potential to be dangerous? Or, and I'll, I'll answer that question with a question. Justification by, is, is by grace apart from works of the law? Is sanctification by grace and works, or grace apart from works of the law? He says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You, you were saved by hearing the gospel and believing the power of the Holy Spirit's work in you. But now you think you're going to add something to that by works of the flesh. You think circumcision will add some kind of badge of righteousness on top. Are you so foolish? He asks. I think the labor of the Christian life really comes down to learning to be a Mary instead of a Martha. We all know that story. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and hears his words. Martha's busy in the kitchen and gets flustered that Mary's not helping. Martha loves Jesus. She loves her family. She labors to demonstrate that by preparing meals for them. She wants to things to be nice. She wants to feed them. She's busy with good things. But Mary is captivated by the ultimate. And really, I think Jesus' tender rebuke to Martha is actually quite soul-crushing to most of us. Martha, Martha, are you so anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. We, we do all kinds of things to work unto the Lord. And that, that can take our whole lives. Um, but the chief work of the Christian is the work of hearing and believing Jesus. Our works are not first works unto Christ or for Christ, but they are works in Christ. 
Paul's point here is plain, that we're sanctified in the same way that we're justified by grace through faith. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sanctification is a work of God's free grace. In Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We're not perfected by works of the flesh, but by the work of the Spirit. Thomas Schreiner asks, what does sanctification by faith alone look like practically? (laughs) That's a great question. What does sanctification by faith alone look like practically? Uh, I heard a good illustration this week. Uh, A woman was raised in the church, raised on gospel truths. I think she was Christian Reformed Church. She was probably raised on the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, And she told this this preacher, I gave $500 check to the deacons. And I know giving doesn't get me into heaven, but it helps. Oh. <laughs> she, she knows, she may have been joking, but she knows intellectually that, that giving doesn't merit her favor with God or some kind of holiness before God. But deep down, she somehow still thinks that it does. The person walking in the flesh gives or works just as the person walking in the Spirit does. But the distinction is the person being perfected by the Spirit gives freely out of faith in God's provision for them. And the person trying to perfect themselves gives in hopes of climbing one rung higher on the ladder of holiness. Luther points out uh, that Paul here is really contrasting The spirit with human effort. The two things are contrasted here. He says every Christian duty, such as loving our spouse, bringing up children, and so on, is a work of the spirit. But the righteousness of the law, which Paul here refers to as trying to attain your goal by human effort, is so far from justifying us that those who fall back on it again after receiving the Holy Spirit are utterly destroyed. We cannot obtain righteousness, even a small amount, by our own effort. We are rather, as regenerate people, people in the Spirit, we're grown up into righteousness by the Holy Spirit. And now here the old question, which is challenging to say the least, the old question of whether sanctification is synergistic or monergistic kind of comes to light here. God regenerates, we know, without argument, monergistically, by himself. He does all the work. Does he also sanctify uh, monergistically, or does he do it with our contribution, with our help? It's an interesting question, and I tend to agree with Kevin DeYoung that the terms are very helpful when we talk about regeneration, but less helpful when we talk about sanctification. They're different categories. But if pushed, I would lean toward a monergistic sanctification understanding so long as I could define my words and and have some caveats. Maybe another day we'll bring out more opportunity to discuss this more robustly. But in brief, I would lean toward a monergistic sanctification because sanctification is part of the salvific process and salvation is of the Lord. We have passive terminology in Scripture. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's clear God sanctifies us, and nothing we can do or not do will hinder Him from accomplishing that purpose in us. But maybe one caveat is that there's a sense in which we do get in, get out what we put in. In other words, if we're lazy or apathetic, we will not grow in holiness. But at the end of the day, it is God who works in us to will and to work. So I still think it's monergistic. Justification obviously is monergistic. We're passive. But even in that, we're not necessarily inactive just because we're passive. I, I like this saying, I, saving faith does not stay in Haran. God told Abram to move. He moved. He believed and he did something. Saving faith steps out into the Red Sea. Saving faith marches around Jericho. Faith is God's instrument, but we exercise it. It is an active thing, even in justification. And I believe our part in sanctification is a lifelong process of living out that justifying faith. So whatever we contribute to the process is a result of God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And all of this, far from destroying Christian work ethic, is actually what gives Christian work ethic its power. What is it that undergirds Christian work ethic? I mean, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For bodily training is of some value, but godliness is a value in every way. We've been doing some workout stuff at home, working out, training our bodies for about a half hour most days. It's of some value, but man, that's a lot of work. And he, he contrasts those two things. Are we training ourselves for godliness? And Peter, also in Second Peter, make every effort to supplement your faith. And he has this list of Christ-like qualities. Make every effort... So obviously we must work hard as Christians, but what is the basis for that effort? Preceding that verse in Second Peter, he gives us the basis. He says in, in first Peter, Second Peter 1, 3 through 5, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's granted us all things through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that's the basis, that, the things that God has done in us. And then he says, for this very reason, make every effort. So it is God's work in us, the, the new birth and union with Christ that undergirds Christian uh, work ethic. And as Christians, we must work. It's both a gospel imperative and a gospel fruit. We see this in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. So we don't work to earn God's favor, but we work by His favor. We, we work in faith by the Holy Spirit. 
He is perfecting us, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. And if we begin by the Spirit, we will continue by the Spirit. Now, the result of seeking righteousness by the flesh is that we would throw everything away that we have done for Christ. Every, everything. He says um, in the next verse, He said, uh, last week I pointed out that the moment we set foot on that mountain that Jesus has already conquered for us, we're judged based on how far up we get, not how far up He got. If we're superficially obedient to the commandments of Christ and in some sort of self-righteous resolve, we've gotten so far as to suffer for the name of Christ, but we try to obtain righteousness by our own works, all of that suffering, devotion to Christ is in vain. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain? The word suffer here also could be experience. Um, Paul would then be asking, did you experience so many things like my preaching or apparent conversion or personal, moral, relational changes? Did you experience these things in vain? Um, And that's a possible interpretation. And some have questioned whether the Galatians were under persecution. But Galatians 4 um, 28 and 29 suggests that I think that they were under persecution. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So it seems like they were under persecution. So Christian suffering is just a part of Christian life anyway. So I think he's talking about suffering. But either way, really the point remains the same. All of their so-called Christian experience would be thrown away if they wish to trade Christ for their own works. All of it is for nothing. Most marathon runners will, will never win the race. They don't even hope to win the race. But they're there to run and to finish. So the worst possible thing for a marathon runner is just not to finish. As Paul in, in Galatians 5, 7, You were running well. <laughs> Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They're being hindered. They're not going to finish. And if they don't finish, it's all in vain. And he says, if indeed it was in vain. So he recognizes he's speaking to Christians, professing Christians here. So it's not a judgment saying, everything you're doing is in vain. You're, you're, you're done for. This is a a warning, not a judgment. He says, If you do count circumcision meritorious for salvation, everything you've endured thus far has been a waste. You've rejected Christ and it's a waste. That's why it's critical that we keep the gospel clear and pure and front and center. I I heard R.C. Sproul say that the gospel has to be republished in every generation. It comes under fire in every generation, or perhaps worse, it comes under fog in every generation. And there are certain things that, if absent, make Christianity a moot point. Uh, The resurrection is one example. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, our ministry is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and we're of all men most to be pitied. You can't have Christianity without the resurrection Neither can you have Christianity without Christ crucified for sinners. Without the cross, we don't have relationship with God. The, the, the core of the breakdown between the relationship of God and man is our sin, and that has to be dealt with, and he dealt with it at the cross. So if that gets confused or 
covered in a blanket of fog, we don't have Christianity. And yet it is something that comes under a blanket of fog, even in the church, even in our own hearts. The the church can be quick to take up social issues or or naturally flows into kind of a a fellowship-based community like a club without the gospel or, or we can get obsessed with community involvement and improvement projects all of which may be fruits the church should exhibit but the cross has to remain central and clear if we adopt other things as means of obtaining a form of righteousness instead of or in addition to the cross we, we toss out the cross entirely in a, the whole of our Christian life The fourth and the final question here circles back around to, to talking about faith and hearing. He's basically asking, how has the Spirit's fruit come to you? And if we think about, if we think back on all the fruit of our lives, if we recall um, those seasons where we really grew, or, or those times when God worked most powerfully that we were able to witness, or when we examine those areas in our lives of, of besetting sins that we've overcome, or, or those areas where we've grown, where we were weak, if we look back at any of those times, how did those times come about? Did they result from law-keeping in your own life? I was obedient to God, and He re- rewarded me with the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. That's That's silly. And much of it, I think, as I look back on my life, was really hard work. But it's obvious to me, once again, that that work ethic didn't proceed from my natural flesh, but from somewhere outside of me, from the Holy Spirit, by hearing with faith. It says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Um, The one who works... Literally here where it says, and works miracles among you is the one who works mighty works among you, or or dunamis, it's the word power, works power among you. Um, And someday in the not too distant future, I hope to get into Acts and we can talk more about the miraculous at that point. Um, But in brief, miracles are meant to be signs of God for attestation, for proving that the true gospel is there and for proving true messengers of the gospel. And actually, there's no Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible for miracle. Um, The words are power, uh, sign, wonder, powerful, mighty work. These are the words the Bible uses that are often translated miracle. And these signs and wonders are particularly important as the gospel spreads into Gentile regions. Acts 10, for example, Cornelius, they, they receive the gospel and then they, they speak in tongues. They have a miraculous sign to attest to the truth that they had heard the gospel. And then, and then the, and the Jews were, were wondering about all this because who, why, would the, why would the Gentiles receive the gospel? But when they hear about the signs, they say, they have received the Spirit even as we have. So they are signs, attestations of the arrival of the eschatological or promised Holy Spirit even to the Gentiles. 
Now, Paul may here be referring to kind of the miraculous signs like healings or tongues or, or whatever from those, that perspective, and likely those things were present in the Galatian church. Um, but also the manifestation of the powerful works of the Spirit are much more broad than that. Think about Ezekiel, the promise of the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the sign of the Holy Spirit, obedience to his statutes. Luther comments here, he says, He is saying, in effect, God has, through my preaching, not only brought you to believe, but also made you live holy lives, producing many fruits of faith and suffering many afflictions. Also, by the same power of the Holy Spirit, you have been changed from adulterers, wrathful, impatient, and greedy people, enemies, in fact, to generous, chaste, gentle, and patient people who love your neighbors. So clearly the Spirit was working powerfully among the Galatians, and even miraculously. And he asked, where did that come from? Did they produce it themselves by the works of the law? Did they somehow merit it by some supreme uh, piety? And that, again, is one major problem with some sort of um, second blessing theology where we receive the Spirit again after conversion because there's those who have experienced it, be it miraculous signs or a second-tier level of holiness, and this creates a, a class system in the church. There are everybody who has believed... But there are the haves and the have-nots. Those who have achieved the Spirit's true work and those who have not. So again, we think of Cornelius as a great example. He was generally seemingly a a moral person, at least. He was a God-fearer connected to the Jewish community, generous with his money. But did the Spirit come on him then when he was a God-fearer and generous with his money, or after when he heard the gospel. Hearing and faith are concomitant with the work of the Spirit. Reception of the Spirit and hearing and faith of the gospel go together. So often the, the works of the Spirit are divorced from the gospel. Sometimes his works and activity are are or experiencing the Spirit, are elevated above the cross of Christ. Jesus describes the Spirit's purpose and ministry like this in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's always pointing to Christ. That is his job. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes to teach us about Christ and to lead us into all truth. His is really a doctrinal ministry to teach us about Christ. So if we are experiencing the Spirit, and that experience does not include the truth and the gospel of Christ, we are not experiencing the Spirit.
How does the Spirit work powerfully? He says, by hearing with faith, hearing the gospel and believing. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that really is the point of this message. The the whole of the Christian life, from regeneration to glorification, is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within us. His work is bound to the word of the gospel. How we receive Christ. How we are perfected. where, Where does... The Spirit's powerfully work, powerful uh, work in us come from, and it comes from hearing with faith. So I urge you this morning to to take up the example of Martha, to to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear and to believe, to cling to Christ who has been placarded before your eyes as crucified, because all else is foolishness. Amen.